All right, so tonight we're in Ephesians, and uh, we're talking about, uh, I didn't quite finish chapter 5. I wanted to, uh, and, I, and I'm glad I didn't, actually. I was just praying about, you know, this session tonight, and I think the Lord wanted me just to stop and nuance the last couple of verses of Ephesians chapter 5 and tie it in with all that we've seen in Ephesians. So um, if, you're, if you've been in our study, um, we've been talking about Ephesians, how it reveals our true identity. We've been, been attempting to get through Ephesians since the summer and have had some interruptions and so on and so forth. And, and now we're finally to the downhill uh, slope, so to speak. Um, now, uh, the purpose is to reveal Christ's efficiency, the church's unity, the Christian's duty through the study of this epistle. Um, and then the theme is to build the body of Christ in the image and likeness of Christ. And in the process, that will reveal our true identity. That's the title. We, we've talked about this several times, so by now this should be like in your brain. The first two chapters deal with the deity of Christ. Um, the middle two chapters, three and four, deal with the unity of the church. And then uh, five and six reveal the, the Christian's duty. Uh, by the, speaking of that, does anyone need a handout? So there should be some. Okay, so Chris wants a handout. All right, so do we have any? Amy, can you go check the connections counter? See, see where those are? Um, and so hopefully I can get you one, Chris. Um, we, we had plenty, so I had 20 of them printed. So, um, <clears throat> so the last two chapters, five and six, uh, reveal the duty of, of man, or of man, of the Christian. So uh, that's kind of the outline there for that. And then we, we've covered the whole book. Thank you. That's perfect. Uh, and I'm just going to, just by way of review, run through this quickly. So in chapter 1, um, we dealt with <coughs> Paul's introductions. And this is, I'm going to come back around to chapter 1 tonight here in just a minute. So kind of keep this in mind. In Paul's introduction, um, Christ's blessings and Paul's prayer for us, that's what you see in the first chapter. The second chapter deals with being quickened from death, quickened in Christ, and then quickened in understanding. And then we get to the third chapter that deals with the revelation of the body of Christ. And we're going to touch on that some more i'm sorry revelation to the body of christ and then intercession for the body of christ chapters uh, in chapter three chapter four we dealt with the unity of the body of christ the diversity of the gifts of the body of christ and the responsibility of the members of the body of christ now i say all that to say we're leading up to chapter five and what we're about to see tonight so you'll notice a lot of these are dealing with the body of christ the body of christ the body of christ or the church the church because really the book of Ephesians is, is, is about not just to a local church, but it's also a lot of doctrine to the church, all the churches. And that's important, especially as we look at this mystery of Christ and the church and what that means in regard to uh, how marriage is a picture of that. And then you get to chapter, uh, uh, let me move, then we get to chapter 5 and we talked about walk like Christ. Uh, and that we walk in love, we walk in the spirit, we walk circumspectly. And we're missing one there. We also walk, uh, what's the fourth one? That, that didn't get updated. Um, circumspectly. And, uh, okay, that's right. So we, we got that right. Okay, and then um, and then last week we started on wedding, wed like the church, like wedding in the term of wedding. Wed, that's not a short for Wednesday. Um, and we got into some stuff. And we talked about um, how important it is, you know, for wives to submit under their own husbands. And all the men said, amen. And then, we talked about that and uh, went into that and talked about, um, you know, how why twice is mentioned uh, that, you know, we see that wives are submit to their own husbands. And so authority is mentioned in that and, and the relationship of the, the wife with her husband. And then uh, then we got into 
the other side of the amen choir, which is husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church, right? And gave himself for it. And uh, that's Ephesians 5.25. And all the ladies said, amen. You know, we talked about that. And uh, how there's so much more written to the husband, like you hear in every wedding. And how the text in Ephesians 5.26-27 teaches that the husband gives himself for his wife, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. And so we spent some time talking about how husbands need to love their wife as their own flesh. And, uh, and then we got to uh, kind of toward the end here, um, where a chapter B or a point B, where husbands and the wife are one flesh as we are one with Christ. So these are all kind of rotating around this bigger issue that Paul's driving to here in point C, which is where we picked up tonight in regard to the church. So what I want to do is, is just go back to Ephesians chapter, well, let's start in Ephesians 5 in our text, and then I want to back up to chapter 1, and then that'll put us on point C, if you're on an outline, that's where we are, the last point, and that we'll pick it up from there. And so, in our text, that where we left off last week, it says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you, in particular, so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverences her husband. If you mark in your Bible, of course, you could take chapter or verse 33 and you could connect it to verse uh, 21, which says, "Giving, uh, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord." He really kind of you can it starts there in verse 21, it ends in verse 33, and it kind of it's kind of it's self-encompassing there. It says, you know, uh, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverences her husband. Uh, that word reverence is, is also uh, can be used as submit. Now, I take you there because really what Paul's laying out is this great mystery in verse 32. Uh, and he's speaking about Christ and the church. And I bring that up because when you get to uh, chapter 6, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more. Next, next time we get into Ephesians, we'll be in chapter 6. And, and there's, a, there's a growth process. But, but really, you, you really have the whole book of Ephesians at this point leading to this point. And then you go back to chapter 1, like I was saying a moment ago, and we go back to the very introductory comments of the Apostle Paul. Um, notice what he says here. He says in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints uh, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So he's not just to the saints at Ephesus. Well, it is, but it's also to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will." to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now, I wanted to just bring this up, because when you get to verse 6, he's talking about being accepted in the uh, beloved. And, and that's really important, because that's us. When we get in the body of Christ, we're accepted in the beloved. When we get saved, we do that through uh, our spiritual birth, and we become children. Uh, and that is all about being part of the body of Christ. In uh, verse 23 of this same chapter, by the way, the, the Bible says, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So when he's talking about being predestinated unto the adoption of children, God has always planned on having a bride for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not something that he just thought of 
You know, well, how am I going to, what am I going to do when Israel rejects me? You know, God knows all that, but he still has a plan and, and he can give any, he can, up to Acts chapter 7, he was still planning on using Israel uh, to fulfill the mission until they rejected him. And then, of course, from that point on, he says, that's fine. I'll finish my prophecies anyway. I'll put that on hold and I'm going to fill up a Gentile bride without the help of Israel. Although he used, you know, Jews like Paul and, and the, 12, the 12 apostles to get the thing started. Uh, for the last couple thousand years, it's been God's been bringing in the Gentiles, and all that's laid out for us in Romans. And so, so God's got a plan for His Son, and that is for Jesus Christ to have a bride. <clears throat> and so, when we get saved, it's, we talk about salvation in individual terms, which is unique to all of the Bible. There's not people personally receiving Christ as Lord and Savior anywhere else in the Bible until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Until Jesus Christ, I mean, every other time you see it it is in the context of you see you see people walking with god like abraham by faith uh, and making god makes a covenant but even with abraham he's making a covenant about his seed and then from there on out the prophecies start unrolling leading to the nation of israel because god has always wanted to work through israel and he always will god has a plan for israel he's not going to forget about it and so a lot of what we teach and believe which is very literal about the bible is uh, today very? It's very popular to, to replace Israel and call Israel, uh, take the promises of Israel and apply them to the church, and say that anything that was given to Israel is now the church's. And it really it confuses the matter because your Bible will not rightly divide. There's reasons that it were to rightly divide the Word of God because God has an inheritance for us, which we're talking about all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, and He has uh, an inheritance for Israel. And because we have the, full, the fulfillment of God's New Testament, we understand the distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven uh, as, it's un, as it's developed in, uh, through the book of Acts. And we understand that as Israel rejected Christ, the promises, the earthly physical promises that he made to Israel will be fulfilled. Uh, God does have a place for Israel. They are going to be fulfilled, literally, those promises. Jesus will be their king. He will return to this earth. We're going to return with him. And, and Israel, uh, who wasn't a nation for, uh, and it wasn't an autonomous nation even before the coming of Christ because of the Romans, uh, is now an autonomous nation at the, end of, of, uh, you know, at the end of this dispensation. Why? Because God's got a plan for Israel. Romans chapter 9 through 11 is coming to pass, and that's going to happen. Uh, that's important, uh, but that is not the church. That's not the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is unique to people who have been biblically born again. You don't get into the body of Christ by being a good Jew in the Old Testament. Uh, no one in the Old Testament was getting born again. Uh, the only people that have been born again are us, people who have come to the place where they understand Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and by faith have trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, Christ quickens us, and we become part of what? Well, the, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. That's what these blessings are about. So as Paul's going through the book of Ephesians, and he's talking about his deity saying, hey guys, you're, in, you're inheriting, this is why it's so important to our identity, you're inheriting the nature of, of God because Christ has changed, changed you from the inside out. You are uh, unified, not just with each other, but you're unified with God and one another. So there's this unity that goes on. That's chapters 3 and 4. And then you get to chapter, chapter 5 and dealing with how to start walking all that out, uh, leading into chapter 6, and that's the duty. Um, he comes back around to this topic of, of a husband and a wife, right? And it's very practical in regard to, you know, not uh, how we talked about, you know, being followers of God as dear children, right? So we're like little children, and we learn to follow God 
and then we walk in love, and we grow in love, and then we uh, walk as uh, children of light, and then we walk circumspectly. Now, he's going to build on that theme as you get into chapter 6 of even more practically, what does that look like? But right now, he, he jumps, he kind of jumps from walking to this subject of, oh, and by the way, wives and, and husbands, you've got to know how to act. And oh, and by the way, this is a picture of Christ and the church. And really what he's doing is saying, hey, guys, get, a, get an idea of what, what your identity really is. Even in your marital relationships, you picture something that's so divine, it's, it's unbelievable. If you take some time to think about it. And so in this text where he says this is a great mystery, uh, I need to take a moment and, and uh, maybe some of you haven't learned what a mystery is. In the, Bible, in the Bible, if you take the word mystery, when we think of mystery, what do we think of? Like something you, you don't know. Mystery is like, what, what is that? You know, murder mystery. You know, you wait the whole, you're watching the murder mystery, the whole plot. You're waiting to see uh, what's going to happen. Well, guess what? When it comes to a New Testament mystery, uh, we teach seven mysteries here at HBF. Um, there's, you, can, you can find it seven times and, and define it in the, in the seven mysteries. One of those is Christ in the church. And so uh, uh, one of the seven this is basic, this is important, because Paul told the Corinthians, he goes, look, we're stewards of the mysteries. What does he mean by that? Well, it's the church that has been given the information. We've been given the New Testament so that we understand the mysteries. It's not that we can't know the mysteries. And so a lot of, uh, don't, don't, don't mistake the word mystery in the New Testament Bible sense with mystical, right? Because there's another church that talks a lot about mystical stuff. Well, this isn't mystical. This is a mystery, and the mysteries have been revealed to us, and that's exactly what he's doing right now. He says, this is a great mystery, but, right, conjunction, junction, what's my function? I speak concerning Christ and the church. The mystery's just been revealed, and the people who should know the mystery are the people, are us, the church, the bride of Christ. So these things uh, were mysterious to the Old Testament saints. They didn't understand this, but we do understand it. And so uh, Paul gets, gets to this great mystery, the, the mystery of Christ in the church. And this is not about human marriage, ultimately. Uh, he's saying, look, this is really, I'm not even talking about human marriage. Though Brian took a whole you know, hour and a half last week to talk about it. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And human marriage is just a picture of that. Oh, now I understand. And so Christian marriages are a picture of Christ and the church. And I, I want to say Christian marriages. Marriage is honorable in all, right, in the bed undefiled. So it's better to marry than to burn, even if you're a lost pagan, because it'll, it's better for your kids, it's better for the family. But the Christian marriage, right, is a picture of Christ and the church, people who are born again. Why? Because it gets back to verse 21. They're submitting themselves one to another in the fear of God. And uh, that's what makes a Christian marriage work. It's not just the wife submitting to her husband and the husband loving his wife. It's that they're both submitted to Christ, and he gives them the grace to be unified. And, uh, and then, because their unity and their prayer life's working, 1 Peter chapter 3 is working for them, right? 1 Peter 3 talks about when it's not working, the prayers are hindered. But then that means if it is working, their prayers aren't hindered. So then they get the riches, the deity. There's an inheritance that comes, and God blesses them and their, the ministry they're in, the children and the fruit of the womb, and all the things that God does in a marriage. And so uh, I want to just take some time in the time we got left. And I, gotta, I don't know how much of this I put up in my PowerPoint. Oh, good. So the first thing I want to talk about is these pictures. Now, 
Before we jump back to uh, to the book of uh, of all these, I'm going to run these references tonight. And before we jump back to that, I just want to just remind you of, of a passage or two in the New Testament uh, to set this up. Because I know we've got some folks joining us that probably aren't always here. So we're going to look at some pictures. And the Bible is really clear uh, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians that, uh, you know what, we need to pay attention to the pictures. Because God allows those pictures so that we can learn. Um, and I'm looking for my, my reference here. Hang on a second. Um, there we go. Should be chapter ten. There it is. Um, now, in Ephesians, in First Corinthians, chapter ten, uh, Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and uh, he says, "Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant of how our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat that same spiritual meat and drink that same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock, capital R, that followed them, and that rock, capital R, was Christ." Uh, I, I mention this because people say, well, Brian, you know, you really shouldn't uh, view these pictures like you do from the Old Testament. Well, I, well, I, I, I tell you, what, if you think that's true of me, then what about the Apostle Paul? There, was there literally a rock following Israel in the Old Testament? There, there, Sharon says yes. It was, what kind of rock was it, Sharon? It was a spiritual rock. It was Christ. Christ is the rock of our salvation. You know, his banner over us is love. You ever sing that song? So he's the rock. So Paul's saying that rock was following him. Well, that rock was, well, it was a pillar and it was a cloud. It wasn't a big stone. So he's likening Christ to a rock. He goes on to say, but with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Then he says this. Now, these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them tempted and were destroyed of serpents. They had a lot of bad luck. No such thing as luck. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Okay, so what's all this about? Paul says, well, now... All these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. All right, so he says this all happened to them. These, are, these guys, uh, all this stuff happened because they were to be examples in verse 6. It says, now these were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things. And then he says there also are in samples. So an example is like something I can watch and say, oh, that's how you, know, that's how you fix a fence. And then in samples, when I get a chance to fix the fence, right, I get to sample what that's like. So, uh, but in his point is, is that, you know what, things that happen in the Old Testament are for our learning, right? They're for our edification. And uh, in the book of Romans, there's another passage, Romans 15, 4, says a very similar thing, that uh, we get to learn from the, the Old Testament. So it's important to go back to the Old Testament. And uh, I'm going to look that verse up, uh, where it says, Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so these mysteries, interestingly enough, it's really cool when you look at an old, a New Testament mystery or a mystery that's been revealed to the church that you can go to the Old Testament and see it in mystery form. It's like, whoa, that is, well, that's God. That's his word. And we got the authority of God's word now, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 15, that the things that we're looking at are already written for our learning. So we're not just making this stuff up. This is what the Bible teaches. 
This is what the Bible teaches us. All right, so let's look at Adam and Eve. This is the first picture. And uh, when I talk to, about marriage, I'll do, I do a fair, my fair share of marriage counseling. Um, and I'm not going to get into every nuance of Adam and Eve tonight for time's sake, but we've already talked about it quite a bit last week. But, you know, one of the things I, I talk to couples about is a lot of times is the, is the image of their marriage, not on the outward, not what people look at from the outward perspective, but just the fact that they are an image of Christ in the church, whether they think they are or not, whether they look like it or not, they are, if they're both saved. Um, and, um, and I tell you, the devil, he just, if you can imagine, he just wants to take as many images of the, of the church as he can and destroy them. That's what he's all about. He doesn't want any images of the church to look good. He wants to destroy every single one of them. And when you realize that your marriage glorifies the Father because you're married to his son, you now understand why the devil wants to attack your marriage. Because he hates it. He hates what it represents. All right, so let's look at Genesis 2. This is the first couple. The first marriage was ordained by God. I just went through this with a young man a few weeks ago. Like marriage is just a thing of paper, isn't it? Oh, no. Um, marriage, before there was paper, God was the one who ordained marriage. The paper just is really just a, a record of what we already know in this record, right? So God is the one who ordains marriage. And we find the first marriage uh, ordained of God was Adam and Eve. So uh, just for time's sake, let's get to verse 21 of chapter 2. And uh, I'm going to pick the story up. Most of you know it. Uh, well, let's just start in verse 18. It says, The Lord God said, It is, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him. Uh, and, and so he's going to make someone to help him. This is after he's named everybody, you know. And out of the ground of the, the Lord God formed, or this is what he's getting ready to do. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, uh, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names uh, to all cattle, to the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a, a helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. This is where I'm wanting to go here. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And God said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He shall be called, or she shall be called, Woman, I must have been reading that new translation, he shall be called. Anyway, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. <clears throat> All right, so, man, this is just a really, uh, you know, you can just read over it and go, oh, that's cool. There's a lot of truth in this, though. There's a lot of things that God's doing in this passage. So, but the first thing we see is that I like to look at is there's a deep sleep that fell upon Adam. And so, um, you know, for God to, to even bring forth the church, how did he do that? Where did the church come from? Was it a group of guys got together and said, we're going to call this organization the church? Yeah, there was a lot in the first three centuries, uh, 10 Roman persecutions. That's good. The church has been persecuted and is persecuted. What's that? Came out of Christ. Yeah, literally. So you're just like, well, Brian, where does that, where's that in the Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to get into that here in just a minute. 
So you see this thing here where uh, <clears throat> the Lord God caused a deep sleep <clears throat> to fall upon Adam. Now, in the Bible, sleep is likened to death. In John chapter 11, um, and I'm not going to look it up for time's sake, but if you go back to verses 11 through 13, just give you the, the quick story. When uh, That's the story of Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus died, <clears throat> and uh, the disciples were afraid to travel because they had a death warrant out for Jesus. And they're like, they get news, Lazarus has died. And, uh, and then uh, and Jesus says he's sleeping. And then they're like, uh, oh, if he's sleeping, it's okay. And Jesus, Jesus says, no, he's dead, right? And Jesus is the one who defines sleep as death. You can look it up in, in uh, John 11, 11 through 13. Sleep is always, as often in the New Testament, in the Old Testament even, likened to, to we even say that in our common vernacular at times, lay them down to rest like they're sleeping, but we know they're dead. So sleep can be interchanged with, with with uh with death in the case of lazarus it literally jesus was like no you so when we get misunderstood we it's understandable well guess what the disciples in the first century also didn't quite understand they're like oh if he's sleeping and jesus is like no i mean he's dead but i'm using the word sleep for a reason because i'm jesus and i'm going to teach a bible study in 2020 uh on the 23rd of december and everybody's gotta get this <laughs> so so he's like <clears throat> so he's like no and then he goes of course and uh, he's been dead for three days, and he stinks and all that stuff. And, uh, of course, Jesus uh, weeps, and then he says, uh, you know, Lazarus, uh, come out of the tomb, awake, and boom, he's up, and he's out, and resurrect. What did he say? Lazarus, arise. And, uh, and Lazarus rises up, and you know the story. Okay, so that's amazing. Um, and so, so Jesus resurrects a dead man. Now, later, Lazarus dies. It's not the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle I prayed about earlier is when Jesus rises conquer sin and death but it's still an amazing miracle nobody else could do all right so so uh so that that definition of sleep is there then you see it later in first uh, thessalonians chapter four they shall not all sleep and it's very clearly meaning death right in first corinthians four thirteen, when they hear the trump then they're going to awake and so that that is all the way through the new testament you can see that all right so when you look back in genesis 2 where we are in our text you see here that that it's no, it's no accident that the Holy Ghost says a deep sleep fell upon Adam. Now, Jesus in the, in the Bible is the last Adam. So if Jesus is the last Adam, this is the, this is the first Adam. Uh, and this Adam failed. Jesus doesn't fail. The last Adam, well, he also, he died. Not, he didn't just like swoon. He literally died. He died on the cross. So when Jesus died on the cross, what did he do? Uh, the Bible says he gave up the ghost, right? And then we know he went to he went while his body was hanging on the cross. He literally went to the center of the earth, and he preached to the captives for three days, and then he resurrected on the third day. All right. So so in Genesis two twenty one we see that. Now look at Zechariah. I just want you to see some prophecies. These are prophecies about this this side business. Go to Zechariah chapter twelve and verse ten, and that's in the back of your Old Testament. Ezekiel, Daniel. Keep going. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Man, wait, I went too far. Um, let's see. Zechariah's right back by Malachi, chapter 10. No, 12. Sorry, Zechariah chapter 12. There we go. Page 1,152 in an Oxford-wide margin. So that's not going to help most of us. But anyway, Zechariah chapter, chapter 12. Look down here in verse 10. 
We'll start in verse 9. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me, check it out now, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as, as uh, one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now, when we read this here in Zechariah chapter, uh, chapter 12, this is still a mystery. I'm standing here today in the middle of the United States reading about a prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled, but yet I understand it. Why do I understand it? Because Jesus Christ has revealed that, revealed that through his spirit. We clearly know that Jesus Christ has been pierced. He was wounded for, their, for our transgressions, right? So Jesus was pierced, but the nation of Israel to this day does not receive Jesus as their Messiah. They blame the Romans for crucifying Jesus. If you go to, New, uh, to Washington, D.C., they used to, actually, it was such a big deal back in the 90s, whenever we were there the first time, you would walk in the Jewish Holocaust Memorial, which is a great place to go see sometime if you've never been there. And in the old days, uh, they've changed it since we went out in like 2018. It's all different now. But it used to be you walked in, you went straight down the stairs to start the tour, and right in the middle was this big thing talking about how the Romans crucified Jesus. We didn't do it. We didn't do it, you know. And uh, that was kind of the, the what they were saying. But uh, the, re- the reality is, yeah, I mean, Jesus willingly gave his life, but yeah, you definitely had a hand in it, um, uh, literally. And so... Uh, but they still don't recognize that. And Zechariah chapter 12 is a prophecy. Now, notice it talks about him being pierced. And, uh, well, Jesus Christ was pierced, uh, obviously in his hands and his feet, but he was also pierced somewhere else, wasn't he? Now, look at Isaiah. You can just flip back to Isaiah 53, another prophecy about his piercings. Um, and these aren't like, you know, he wasn't getting gauges. Uh, these are piercings that came from, you know, nails and and then that one in his side, and I'll get to that in a minute as well. Isaiah 53, so you're going to have to hang. This is Bible study. We're studying the Bible tonight. Isaiah 53 and verse 3, um, it says, "He is dis- This is familiar. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. I'm in the wrong verse. Keep going. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, you can remember the Ethiopian eunuch was reading this passage going, who is he talking about, himself or somebody else, right? And of course, we know that... uh, Philip preached to him Jesus. And, and uh, you notice in verse 5, though, again, this issue, uh, which is very clearly dealing with Christ um, in, in all of those things, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Now, Israel doesn't receive that to this day. They, they will. We saw in Zechariah 10. Someday they will. At his coming, they'll go, oh, man, man oh. He's our, the, Israel will receive Jesus as their Messiah after the tribulation or as they're in the tribulation, some of them. Some of them will, some of them won't. But but you know what? There's been a whole group of people for the last 2,000 years receiving Jesus' sacrifice for sin. And who is that? Oh, it's, it's not just the Jews, it's the church. It's all who will call upon his name. All. In Christ, you're neither Jew nor Greek. 
but a new creature. I mean, an incredible thing happens when we trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. All right, so there's other passages that deal with the wounds of his hands and his feet. And uh, if you go back to Psalm chapter 22, and verse 16, Psalm 22 and verse 16, just look at that with me briefly. If you got that, go ahead and you can read it out. Anybody have that? Because you kind of know where I'm headed here. Psalm 22 and uh, verse 16. Job, Psalms. Uh-huh. All right. So, uh, was that Wendy or was that... Okay, so uh, that was Mrs. Lisa Plew. So, I didn't put the mic on you. So, what she read was... The do- for dogs have compassed me. What are the dogs he's talking about? Does anybody know? What What does he mean by dogs? I'm sorry? Bad people? Um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, uh, to be real technical, is not who he's talking about. He's talking about, what's that? The Romans. Why would he be talking about the Romans? All the way. Who? What's that? Who said it? The Gentiles, right? All the way through the Bible, that was my lovely bride. She's hiding back there behind her mask like a bandit. Uh, so, um, so yeah. So all the way. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. I didn't run the references, but if you did a word study on the word dogs, you're going to find out in the Old Testament, they call the Gentiles dogs all the way through the Old Testament. So Gentiles are like dogs. And if you watch Gentiles, they're like dogs. You think back to the law of Moses, right? They had all these laws for cleanliness and and all of those things. Gentiles don't always operate by those laws. They operate by a lot of superstition, but they don't always, I mean, they do a lot of dog activity. And so, uh, and so even, even interestingly enough, even in common vernacular, Gentiles call each other, yo dog, what's up? And so the dogs, dogs are just what Gentiles call each other because you know what? He's a dirty dog. I mean, we even, we even, we even know that we're like dogs if we're not in Christ. And so, and so I'm just saying dogs, they're not, they're not faithful to their dogs just go place to place and they breed. And they're not really loyal. They're loyal, maybe they're master, but they're usually they're not always loyal to. You know, there's just a lot of things about dogs when you start looking at what dogs do. They're not faithful to the picture of marriage. So that's a whole other discussion. But it is interesting. So that's all the way through the Bible. It talks about how they go against the wall in the Old Testament, and it ta- and, call, and God calls them dogs, right? And yet God God quickens us and makes us new creatures in Christ and gives us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places and includes us in His bride. So we're no longer dogs. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. But in this prophecy, now this is Psalm 22, and it's very clearly, you don't even have to have a PhD in theology to read that and go, that's got to be talking about Jesus. If you read the whole thing, it's actually what Jesus is thinking on the cross. Uh, to the, he does, you know, the, the Pharisees are his brothers and the Sadducees. Those are his people, Israel. So, Pam, that was a good a good word, but... He says, the dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked. That's your Pharisees. They've enclosed, they've enclosed uh, me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All right, so 
we see these prophecies in the Old Testament. This isn't like happenstance. This, these are, this is, I mean, the Bible, Jesus' crucifixion was unbelievably accurate. And his incarnation, just like we're talking about it's Christmas and we're celebrating the incarnation, he came to die. He came to die. And he had already knew where he was going. Uh, God is amazing. He's incredible. So the Old Testament sacrifices were also a picture. And I'm going somewhere with this, so just, just, uh, just hang with me for just a moment. Because uh, back, in, back in our text, I was just that one picture that we were looking at in Genesis, uh, where you see, you see this, uh, uh, this in, in chapter 2, he says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. Okay? So we also know that Jesus is like a, he's like a, a sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifices were also a picture of Christ who was offered without a, a bone broken, even though he was beat mercilessly. In Exodus, look at Exodus chapter 20, uh, 12, which I got all the references up here that we're going to, so you can get there with me. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46. <clears throat> so when you get over there to Exodus twelve forty-six, 46, um, it says, In one house... Shall it be now? This is the Passover, so we're dealing with this. Is just for, for those who don't really kind of know the context. Exodus twelve, Israel is escaping Pharaoh. They're trying to get out of bondage, and uh, God commands them, "Hey, you know, let's do a sacrifice. <laughs> let's kill a lamb. Let's put the blood over the doorposts, and uh, and uh, then we'll get out of here. You know, the death angel is going to pass over. As long as you got the blood on the doorpost, he's going to pass over you." And that's why we, they call that, that feast from that time on the Passover feast because the death angel passed over the children of Israel and went and killed the firstborn of the Egyptians, including Pharaoh's son. All right, so, um, so when you get down to uh, verse, uh, where was I at? Exodus twelve forty six. I'm just going to cut to the, we'll, we'll start in verse, uh, let's just get to verse 46 for time's sake. He says, In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad, uh, out of the house, neither shall you break a bone thereof. The sacrifice that's offered as the Passover, you're not to break one of its bones. And of course, Jesus is that sacrifice. He literally, Paul in Corinthians says, Jesus Christ is our Passover. He is the bread of life. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He, all that's already in type in the Old Testament. But it's revealed to us. In Numbers chapter 9... And I'm going, I'm going somewhere with this, so hang with me. In Numbers, Numbers chapter 9 and verse 12, uh, the Bible says, let me get back there. They shall leave none of it under the morning, nor break any bone of it, according to all the ordinances of the Passover shall they keep it. So through, to this day, when they do a sacrifice, the Jews do a sacrifice for Passover, which they uh, still observe the Passover, um, they do not break the bone. They, get, they should have the best lamb without spot or without blemish, and they should offer that lamb and not break one of its bones because that lamb is a picture of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And you say, well, now what is it going to be in the future if they're going to do that in the future? It's just like we do with the Lord's Supper. It becomes a memorial to the, to the Lamb of God who will be sitting on the throne in Jerusalem after his return. All right, so... That's a good question. All right, so it was from Jesus' atonement that the blood and the water came out. Now, this is really where I want to go with you. Now, go back to 1 John chapter 5. This gets back to what Ron was saying just a minute ago when we, I asked that question. 
Where did the church come from? Well, we're going to find out. First uh, John chapter uh, five. Now, first John's in the back. It's not John in the front of your Bible. That's John, and then there's three little ones in the back. First, second, and third John. First John chapter five, and. Uh, in verse 6, the Bible says, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. Now, John is being very specific here. And it, and it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. All right, that's what it says, unless you're a Jehovah Witness across the highway. Um, these three are one. And, and again, there's that capital W, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That, pro, that capital W word um, is always uh, a synonymous with, the, it's a proper noun for Jesus. And you go to Revelation 19 and see that, that's where it's defined. So the Bible defines itself. You don't, we aren't making this stuff up. It's all in the Bible. So we know that. That's called the Godhead, the, the Word, um, the Holy Ghost, and, of course, the Father, who's preeminent, the Word and the Holy Ghost. That's even the order of authority. So there are three that bear record in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Hmm, okay. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. And he that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not, God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave his Son. Capital S, the Son of God. Then God gave his Son. And what bears record to that is the water and the blood. The water and the blood. Okay? So look over at John chapter 19. Because that's, you can read a lot of commentaries and they're going to give you lots of uh, discussions about, well, you know, when someone dies on a cross, their heart fills up with fluid around, around their, their, their lungs or their heart. And, okay? And then when you put a spear through that, it's, it's water and blood comes out. Well, that's probably all, all true. But there's a little more to it than that. In John chapter 19 and verse 34... Let's just back this up just a little bit. When, verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. What's finished? Right. His death, his atoning work. He's done. It is finished. So those that teach, well, you know, the prophet of Jonah says, that, you know, this, that, and the other, so he must have been in the center of the earth suffering. Jonah was suffering, not Jesus. Jesus was done on the cross. The fin- when we say the finished work, that's really the verse for You often hear me say up here when I'm preaching, we trust Jesus Christ and his finished work. What we're saying is that we, we believe Jesus atoned for our sins in three hours on the cross. The, it, when he said it is finished, it was finished. It was done, right? And then it says, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. 
Now, we know that his hands and feet were already pierced. We've seen prophecies that that was going to happen. That's already happened. He, his resurrected body contains the holes, right? Uh, uh, we know that because Thomas, he shows up in the upper room after the resurrection and says, Hey, Thomas, come here. You need some evidence, you faithless guy? Come here. Just stick your hands in, in me. We'll see how this goes. And he bows down and says, My Lord, my God, right? Thrusts his, his fists in his side. But so the holes that were in his body, are they remain. And I believe also in Revelation 21, I believe, or 22, that's where the, the water, he's a fountain of living water. But we're getting to that. I wasn't actually in my verses. I'll show you that in a minute. All right, so um, so the Jews, therefore, because it, it pertained that the body should not remain on the cross, this is verse 31, on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath day was a high day, uh, besought Pilate that their, that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. Uh-oh, uh-oh. For the picture, you can't break Jesus' legs. The lamb isn't supposed to have any broken bones. And they commanded him, go break their legs. Why? Because they're, the whole deal of crucifixions is a slow, grueling death. And they kept pushing themselves up, you know, trying to get a breath. And they had to push themselves up. But they didn't just die. It was a terrible, agonizing death, slow death. They suffocated eventually. And he's like, man, this is a holy high day. Get those bodies down. So go break their legs so they can't breathe anymore. Then they just suffocate and they die. All right? And check out what happens. And it says um, in verse 32, then, they, then came the soldiers to break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs. Not a bone was broken. Wow. It's amazing how the Bible's accurate. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, pierced his side, and forthwith there uh, came there out blood and water. The last mention of the word spear in the Bible, by the way. First missions in John 8, 18. And so this blood and this water comes out. Now, for a long time, I thought, well, this just was blood and water. I didn't even know. But when I started looking at 1 John chapter 5, I'm like, wait a minute. These three agree in one. What's going on with this? And I, I think, I think, it's quite, I, I think it's possible that, yes, someone who's dying has water around their heart, whatever. But I tell you what, he was pretty wrung out, by the way, when it comes to water. Uh, if you know, that's why he died so soon. Because even though he had superhuman, I do think he had probably like superhuman strength. He was all human and all God, but it took a lot to kill Jesus. Uh, that's why he was up, you know, he's up praying all night and then he gets taken into custody and then he gets tried and then he gets beaten. I mean, it's, it takes a lot and he's trying to carry his own cross and he's, I mean, I'd have been dead already, right? I'd have blood out up on the post probably and I'd have never made it up to the, up to Calvary. They'd have to drag my carcass up by the, you know, Jesus, not Jesus. I mean, he's able to get all the way up there and then he dies on the cross. <laughs> it's finished. And the blood, they pierce his side, and the blood and the water come out. And, uh, you know, I'm not so sure that there wasn't something special going on with Jesus' blood and his water. Because we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that in verse 50, Paul said this. He says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption incorruption. Now, he was all human. But he's also all God. And I believe, we sing that song, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. 
blood in the water. Well, there's a reason why Ephesians chapter 5 says, Husbands, wash your wives in the water of the word. 1 John chapter 5 says, This is a witness. Because I think he probably had two circulatory systems or somehow had blood and water. And not just any old water, but it was pure blood of Christ. That's why when we do the Lord's Supper, we don't use fermented blood. Well, we don't use blood, period. It's a picture. It's a type. But we use unfermented juice. Because there's water. The water and the blood, human blood can't inherit anything. But there's something special about the blood of Christ. He was all God. This gets back to the birth that we're celebrating right now. He was all God, all man. He had dual natures, but he was still one. One man. He was the God man. God with skin on. Uh, And so it's amazing. Now, just so you see that after the resurrection, check this out. This is something that I studied in my Bible many years ago. And when I saw this, I was like, whoa, this is so cool. In Revelation chapter 22, um, in chapter 22 in verse uh, 1, it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God, conjunction, junction, and of the Lamb. There's some water coming out of the land, and it is a, it's a fountain. I don't know. I mean, that's just, it's amazing. There's something about the blood of Christ. So where did that, the church come from? Back to my original question and wrong answer. It comes from, came from the side. Jesus bought us, going back to Adam and Eve. So it's no accident when you get back to Genesis, back where we started, and you're in chapter 2, down there in verse 21, which is where we started tonight in this this picture, this one picture. We're not even looking at all of it. We're just looking at, an, at one aspect of this or a couple aspects of it. He put him to sleep in verse 21 like a lamb being put down to death. Right? It is finished. And he gave up the ghost, the Bible says. And then it says, Adam, uh, uh, then he, he as he slept, he took one of his ribs and when he took that rib out, he closed him back up, right? And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman. And he brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We come, out of, we come out of Christ's sacrifice. The reason we get saved is we believe that he died on the cross for our sins. He shed his blood for us. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. God took, took out of Adam a rib, out of his side. Jesus was pierced in the side and he purchased our pardon. He atoned for our sins as a sacrificial lamb, obviously, as he suffered on the cross. But then he literally poured out his blood. When he resurrected, he says, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to my father. He goes in then as a high priest and atones. And then he comes back 45 minutes later and he's walking down the, you know, he's like, hey, what's up? You know, he's just hanging out, eating, you know, no problem. I mean, it's amazing what he did. And you know what? The church starts right there. God starts to draw all. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Look and live. 
my brother live. Look to Jesus now and live. It's recorded in his word, hallelujah, right? So what is he? He was a curse. He was cursed for us. Galatians says, you know, uh, uh, curses anything that hangeth on a tree. Jesus was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. And so how do we get righteous? Well, it's not by our works of righteousness that we've done, Titus chapter 2. It's by the righteousness of Christ and how God took us from his side. So when we identify with Christ and we get saved, what we're really doing is getting washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed in the blood? All those songs, those are beautiful songs. The soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. Are your garments spotless? Are you white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? You think washing in blood, that's like a bloody mess. Well, it depends on whose blood you're being washed in. When Those folks writing those old hymns, they knew something. I think we've forgotten. There's something going on with the blood of Christ, and it is a cleansing flood. It's the water of the word. All these, you can't miss it if you just believe the Bible. There's something going on with the water and the blood. And John's like, don't miss it. This witness is true. It's true. So I'm just saying, these pictures are amazing. So when we talk about Christ in the church, this is in the Bible the whole time. It's been there since Genesis, the first writings. And yet for centuries, nobody, the Jews themselves are saying, who are you? Right in front of their face. Pilate, are you a king? They don't know. Think about it, the shepherds. They, they come, they go to Bethlehem, they see it, they go out and proclaim it, and nobody cared. You didn't see the Pharisees and Sadducees making a trip down to Bethlehem. Oh, the Messiah's arrived. He's a toddler before the wise men show up. Why? Because he came to the earth, and even with people announcing it, with angels showing up in the middle of the night, I mean, some crazy stuff's going on, you know, and, and shepherds running around telling everybody about it. Yeah. You're too busy. NFL was on that night. Just didn't have time. Too many things going on. We got to get our taxes due. We got to go to work. So there's another great picture. I'm going to have to pick up the pace here. Um, so when, let me pause. There any questions on this? Because this is just one little picture of Christ in the church. You guys tracking with me on that? All right. So let's look at another one, and that's Ruth. This is a really great picture in the Old Testament. Ruth, uh, Ruth chapter, well, let's just go, I'm not going to read all of, of this, but uh, for time's sake, but let's just do a quick overview of, uh, of Ruth. It's another Old Testament type. She's a, uh, if you turn to the book of Ruth, and I'm not going to like cover it in any depth tonight for time's sake, but Joshua Judges, Ruth. Okay, Ruth, it's a short little book. You could read this in, I mean, in, in one setting. It's, it's digestible in one meal. Uh, it's it's four chapters, and it starts off in chapter one, and you have this Gentile, you have these Jew, this Jewess married to this this uh, this couple. I'll just say Naomi and her husband, and they're they're in this land of Moab. Moab is the is the uh, offspring of Lot's children, and they're the enemies of of God's people at this point. They're cousins, but man, they hate each other, and uh, and they hate the Jews. They still they, they you know they just hate them. All right, so. It's like their neighbors today. They're, they're related, but they hate them. All right, so, uh, and so Ishmael is not friends with Isaac. You know, it's just, it just isn't that way. All right, so, uh, and so there's a famine. In, they shouldn't have been in Moab to start with, but they were in Moab. There's a famine. Anyway, Naomi, uh, 
is the is the matriarch, and she loses her husband, she loses her two sons, and she's left with two Moabitish daughter-in-laws, right? So these are these are not Jews by birth. They've married the, her sons, and the, basically she's like, you know what? Why don't you guys go home? Uh, I'm going back to my house um, back in Bethlehem of Judah. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem of Judah, and uh, you guys go back and just live your life, find you a good man, get married, you know, Jehovah bless you, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and so away she goes. But this girl Ruth would not leave her alone. Now, get granted, this girl, you know, just like in marriage, what do we say? Till death do us part. Her husband's dead. She is no longer bound to follow her mother-in-law, Naomi. She doesn't have to. Naomi's like, man, I appreciate it. You're so kind, Ruth. Please go back. Go find you a man. I'm not going to be able to help you out. And now, and Ruth says these incredible words to her. She says, um, uh, where's that verse at? Uh, somebody help me. In verse 12, 16, yes, thank you. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. And boy, that's a big statement right there. She says, your God is now my God. Because you're Jewish now? Nope. She doesn't have any inheritance in Israel. But she has become what you would call a proselyte Jew, which at that time, if you wanted to be saved, you needed to be, need to go through Israel. And so what she's, she's like, I'm believing in the God. I believe in Jehovah God. I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac. What's in that statement is I believe in the covenant that was made to Abraham. I believe in the covenant given to Isaac. I believe in the covenant given to Jacob. I believe the stories of Joshua and Caleb. And I believe in the promise that God has given to Israel. I believe that Messiah will come. I'm, I'm coming with you, Naomi. I, I'm going with you. And, uh, and so where are they going? Verse 19, they're going to Bethlehem of all places. Imagine that. Bethlehem, Judah, where we celebrate Christmas. And in verse 20, Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore because I'm with the Judds. No, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me, call me Mara, which means bitter. I mean, I'm just a bitter widow at this point. I am just, man, I am a mess. I'm going home. Wham, 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 right? She's done. And uh, she's going home to die. But you know what happens is in verse 2, it says, and Naomi had a kismet of her husband's a mighty man of wealth of the family of, of Imelech, Elimelech, I'm sorry, that was her husband. And his name was Boaz. We're introduced to this dude named Boaz. And just to cut to the chase, this guy Boaz, is a, is a, he's a rich kinsman. And there's a law in the Old Testament called the Law of the Kinsman Redeemer in Leviticus 25, 23 through 25. And uh, in uh, verses 47 through 48, I'm not going to, for time, I'm not going to, I was wanting to look it up, but uh, I'm kind of running short here. Let me see where I'm at. Well, I can, I can look this up real quick. So go back to Leviticus 25. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus 25 and verse uh, 23. Check this out. And, the land, and this, is a, this, is a, just a, this is right out of the law, the Levitical law. The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. Ye are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession... Oh, I'm in... Wait a minute. Yeah, I'm in the right place. Uh, ye shall uh, grant redemption for the land. Now skip up to verse 47. 
God says, I own the land, and you guys need to keep it. Verse 47, And if a sojourner or stranger wax rich by thee, and thy brother that dwelleth by him uh, wax poor, and selleth himself into, to the stranger or sojourner by thee, or to the stock of a stranger's family, after that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him. Either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him, or if he be able, he may uh, redeem himself. And he shall reckon with him that, that bought him from, uh, from the year that he was sold, that he was sold under the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sales shall be according to the number of years, according to the time of an hired servant shall it be with him. So God had a way of resetting uh, the economy. And he did it through this, this law of redemption. And, uh, and so uh, you would, basically people went into bondage, and then they would, um, they could, at the year, year of Jubilee, the economy was reset, and the inheritances went back. And so you couldn't just perpetually uh, own everything and take someone's property. It was inherited into the tribes and the families and all of those things. But you could sell yourself into slavery and so on and so forth. So that's how they amassed wealth. So God had it all set up. Israel didn't, by the way, observe all of that. That's part of the reasons they went into captivity, as they didn't observe the Sabbaths, they didn't observe the law and all those things, and they, they got greedy, and God uh, took them into captivity over that. There's also the law of the kinsman redeemer. And, uh, man, I, I'm, I thought that was where I was at. Uh, where is that one? Um, this is the law of the kinsman redeemer, but I'm looking for the wife part of it, where they raise up seed unto them, and it's not in chapter 25. So there's another um, there's another there's another section that deals with the law of the kinsman redeemer, and if if your brother uh, was to uh, die, and and uh, th- this is this plays out under Judah back in the book of Genesis, Judah. This is before the law, but Judah. Um, he had boys, and they married a, a lady named Tamar. And then his, 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 uh, her, her husband died. And so this sounds weird to us, I know, but and it is kind of freaky. And, and so, so if, if, if I had like seven brothers, right, and, and I died, the next brother, if he could take on the responsibility, would take my bride on and have children with her so that she could raise up seed in my name, and the inheritance would go to her and the kids as well that I had. And so they'd redeem that property, and then the inheritance would go. That also got worked out with the, the children of Caleb in the Old Testament. There were some daughters, and, the, and all that law was worked out. So this is all about inheritance and property. And then if that first brother couldn't do the law, the duty of the kinsman redeemer, well, the next brother was supposed to do it, and so on and so forth. Well, Tamar, in the book of Genesis, you can read this, she ends up having a child named Pharez because Judah did not give her his, the sons as he was supposed to, so she could bear children. She dressed up like a prostitute, lures him in. This is sorted, I know. It's like R-rated, X-rated, whatever. Judah has an affair, uh, an indiscreet affair, affair with Tamar on the side of the road, no less. And she gets pregnant with his child. And when this comes to pass and they find out, they're ready to kill her. And she just she asks for a signet from him and a, and a rod. And uh, he's like, okay. And then she ran off with it, so he didn't know what happened. And she shows up with him and says, oh, here you go, Judah. And he's like, oh, you got me. And he knew exactly what the deal was. I should have gave, my son should have taken you. I should have given you to that, uh, I forget the name of his son that he didn't give him to. But he bypassed the law of the kinsman redeemer because the, the brothers didn't want her. And anyway, it's a sordid, messy situation. From her comes Pharez. 
And then from Pharez eventually comes, well, Pharez is in the same line as Boaz, interestingly enough. And Boaz sees this Gentile girl named Ruth who follows Naomi in from Moab. And the only reason she's coming is she loves God. She loves Jehovah. Let your God be my God. This is way better than anything we got going in Moab. I'm all in for Jehovah. I'm all in for these promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm all, I'm all down for it. And so Boaz is introduced. Uh, and Boaz sees her, and he starts to do what the law says. He leaves handfuls of purpose in the corners of the fields. He starts taking care of her. And Naomi, she may be dumb, but she's not stupid. She says, man, Ruth, Boaz is treating you fine. You ought to go ask him to, you know, be your, be your beau. No, be your husband. So you know what? She actually does. She goes and sleeps at his feet, and it's all appropriate. People will try to make it sort of wasn't inappropriate. And she signified to him that, hey, I'm here. If, you would, if you'll take me, I'm here. And, of course, he's an old dude, and he's like, well, you're a fine young lady. You could find any young man. I mean, really? And she's like, hey, uh, God's led me to you. And uh, so he's like, let me go check it out. And he doesn't tarry. He knows a good deal when he finds it. That's how he got rich. So he goes out, and, uh, of course, he's blessed by God. That's really, he's a good man. And so he goes out, and he deals with all the relatives that was between him and her. I'm fast forwarding the story, and he says, "Look, guys, I'm willing to do the, the I'm, do, I'm willing to do the the duty of a kinsman redeemer with this young lady, this Moabitess, Elimelech's family." And he's and they're like, "Go for it. We don't have the resources. We can't take on another wife. We can't afford more kids. I got enough here at home, right?" And so Boaz is like, "All right, she's mine." And they were willing, happy. Anyway, from that comes, eventually comes David, the king. And so it's a beautiful picture. What am I, why am I saying all that? It's a beautiful picture of Christ in the church because it's a clear picture of a Gentile bride with absolutely no inheritance who's grafted into the bloodline of David uh, and Christ through faith alone, just through faith alone, the God of Israel in her, in her faith in the God of Israel. And she's married uh, to a Jewish kinsman redeemer. And she inherits his status his property, and even becomes a major player in the bloodline of the Lord Jesus Christ, his human bloodline, and in the throne of David, and in the kingdom of the kingdom, period, with a capital K, and ultimately the Messiah coming down to Mary. And so she too is a type of the mystery of Christ in the church. What a beautiful picture that is. When you go to the fourth chapter, just real quick, you can see the, the lineage. It says in verse 17, in the woman... Uh, her neighbors gave it a name, saying, There is born to Naomi. Uh, they shall call his name Obed, and, he, and uh, he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Right? So, Grandma Naomi, great grandma Naomi, Grandma Ruth, David. It's no wonder. So, David had, had, had some Gentile blood in him. He wasn't even a purebred. Right? And so. Uh, now, these are the generations. Notice it mentions in verse 18, Pharez begot Hezron. Pharez is the one, the one born to that crazy, illicit relationship between Judah and Tamar. Pharez begot Hezron. Hezron, Ram, Ram, Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. Ten generations from the curse of Deuteronomy Twenty three twelve, which says there can be no kings in this line for 10 generations. Guess what? David is the first available king. And from that kingly line, through Nathan, not through 
Solomon comes Mary, and there comes Jesus. It's amazing. Christmas. Merry Christmas. Christ in the church. Okay, one more picture, and that we're going to be done. And I, I, I actually got my notes right on time. Go over to uh, Esther, right? So Esther is the, is the next picture. Now, this is a good way to end it. Uh, Esther, because this isn't, isn't the, exactly the way you want to end this discussion, but let's just talk about Christ in the church for just a moment. Um, wait a minute. Where's Esther? Get back here by Job. Okay, there it is. So if you get to Job, go backward till you hit Esther. Esther's another book. Now, this is primarily, and this is a great way to wrap this up. Um, this is pictured in Vashti, if you're filling in the blanks. Uh, this is pictured in Vashti. So you got the picture of Adam and Eve. You got the picture in Ruth. And then you got the picture in Vashti. So, um, and, and for time's sake, I'm not going to read it all, but just giving you a little background. It talks about, this is a, there's a king called Ahasuerus. And uh, this is, this is a, a massive kingdom. Uh, this is when Israel's in captivity. And it says that, uh, that uh, he reigned from India, which is modern-day India, even to Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces. So this dude has some major uh, influence. And it says that, uh, that in those days when the king of Hashuarah sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, uh, the power of Persia and Media, which you've heard of the, the Medes and the Perds, Persians, uh, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the, the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore days, and when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both under the great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where uh, were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver and rings of pillar and marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon pavement of, of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold and vessels uh, being diverse one from another and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the kings. This is a great big deal. Everyone's focused on it. You know, CNN's there, Fox News is there. Um, I think the Epoch Times was there, and, the, and they were drinking according to the law. None did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Now notice this. Also Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Uh, and it says on verse, in verse 10, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, uh, he commanded... Uh, Mehuman and Bizda and Harbana and Bigtha and uh, Abgatha and Zethar and, and Carcass, what a name, and seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to sh and that wasn't an alcohol, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. But notice what happens in verse 12. But the queen, but Queen Vashti, Refused to come at the king's command by his chamberlains. Therefore, the king, uh, therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then said the king, or then uh, sorry, then the king said to the wise men which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew the law and judgment. The net uh, and the net the next unto him was uh, 
all these men, I'm going to skip to it. Uh, verse 15, what shall we do unto Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of the king of Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And it says, uh, and then they answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen, verse 6, hath, hath uh, not done wrong uh, to the king only, but to all the princes and to all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so shall they despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, and she came not. Likewise shall, all the, la- shall the ladies of Persia uh, and Media say this day unto the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen, thus shall they arise too much contempt and wrath. So they're worried about her rebellion and causing the women of Persia which is not just modern-day Iran, but all the way from India to Ethiopia and all those provinces, to start rebelling against their husbands. They're having a submission issue because the Gentile bride is having a submission issue. And she's going her own way. Now, this is why I want to finish on this because it's kind of a negative Debbie Downer type of thing, but it's important. Because when Jesus is uh, working through Paul to to write Ephesians chapter 5, and he's talking about, hey, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. Give your life for them, right? Because you've been taken out of the sight of Christ. And so you need to wash your wife in the water of the word. Now, I don't literally like say, hey, baby, open up my side. Here comes, no, here's the water of the word, right? This is the water. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I've got to wash myself in the water of the word or I'm no good to my wife, practically speaking. Same thing with the church. My job here is to keep the church clean and ready for her bride. I'm to bring the church. I mean, Jesus is doing all the work. Don't get me wrong. But my job is to wash the water of the word over the congregation so when Jesus comes for us, we're ready for him. But you know what the the issue is? Every dispensation ends in a failure. And this is something that's been heavy on my heart for several months. And, I, 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 and I'm going to go to Revelation 3 because i got like three minutes. And I can do this. I can finish this up right on time. So let me finish this. Revelation chapter 3. We know in the last church age that not everybody's paying attention to their husband. Just look at that. Revelation chapter 3. When you go through the other churches, it's not talking about individuals. It's talking about the group, the group, the group. He's talking about the church of Ephesus. This is what you did as a group. They were, had unity. This is, they understood what Paul said. They moved as a group, right? Not in Laodicea. It's a church full of individuals doing what they want to do, like Vashti. And, and Paul says, or the Lord says through John the apostle, I'm sorry, verse 14, And the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, he's talking about the angel. You're not going to lose your salvation. But he's saying, the church makes me sick. Because thou sayest, I'm a queen. Because thou sayest, I'm rich and increased with goods. I don't need nothing. I don't even need the king. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Now, let me tell you something. King Ahasuerus is nothing like Jesus. 
Jesus is a great king, man. He is a, I just preached that, Malachi chapter 1, the last verse. I'm a great king. He is a great king. It's a shame he even has to say it. He's a great husband. Why won't you come? Why won't you listen? Why won't you follow? Because you say you're rich and increased with goods and you don't need anything? That's terrible. Let me give you counsel, wife. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. You're blind. Don't you see the honor I want to bestow upon you? When you honor me, I honor you. And when you honor... This works in a marriage too, by the way. But he's not talking about just marriage. He's talking about Christ and the church. As many as I love... I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You know what happened? You tell me. What happened with Queen Vashti? What ha- how'd that story end with Esther? What's that? Well, they replaced her. I don't think they killed her, but they replaced her. She got replaced. She got replaced with a Jewish virgin. Named Esther. Now, guys, that's what's next on the agenda. That's what's next on the dispensational chart. Because the church, Laodicean, means rights of the people. I want my rights. I want my rights. I'm one of them. I got mad at the city because they extorted uh, Amy's social security number and 50 bucks from us. I want my rights. But more than that, I need one, I need a one Jesus. Right, My rights don't matter once I'm born again. Why? Because I've been bought with a price. The church has been bought. We serve no one. We don't serve Donald Trump. We don't serve Joe Biden. We serve Jesus. We honor, the, we honor those in authority, whoever they are, but we know that they're going to fall short. And they're not, our, they're not our saviors. We're the saviors. We're the salt. We're the light. And God says, listen, don't get focused on everything else. Stay focused on me because I'm coming soon. Keep your garments right. Don't run off on me. Stay focused. Hear my voice. I am the I am the I am the door, right? I am the one. I am the I am the uh, oh gosh, the, this verse just fell out of my head. Of the sheepfold, he is the, he's the shepherd of the sheepfold. And he he tells him, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him. And he with me, John twenty one fifteen. Man, he 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 supped with the disciples. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. What do you tell Peter? Hey Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. He's had a dinner with him, and then he said, "Follow me, my sheep. Hear my voice." You know what? Vashti wasn't hearing the voice of the king; she was ignoring it. And beloved, today the Bible's been ripped out of people's hands, the pure words being defiled left and right, being watered down, being twisted and perverted. It's going to get to be where the, the armory is going to be one of the few places you can pick up a King James Bible before it's over. Why? Because you know what? People don't want to hear his voice. And the devil doesn't want us to hear his voice. But the good news is, listen to this, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and sat down in my father, with my father in his throne, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. You know what? God's calling us to sit with him in his throne. 
And man, we need to respond. Because Ephesians chapter 5, we understand that, you know what? The picture of marriage, wives submitting to their husbands, it's not because he needs to lord over her. It's because he has something for her, right? He wants her to be an heir with him. And she should want that. But we've got it all turned upside down because of human nature, which is wicked. And men have not honored women. And all of that's all true. But you know what? In Christ, it should be different. The picture of my relationship with my wife, a Christian man's relationship with his wife, it should be a picture of Christ in the church. And you can find in the pictures, you can also find a lot of fault because God puts that in there too. Now, the next thing that you hear is in chapter 4 is, is actually there's a trump and the door opens. And it's a picture of the church being caught up. And then you know what's on the agenda next? The tribulation period in the, in the, the nation of Israel getting, recti- getting uh, reconciled. A Jewish, a Jewish bride the king and so it's amazing all the stuff that's in your bible guys these mysteries are revealed to us and so we're celebrating christmas tomorrow night's christmas eve we're going to be talking about uh, you know jesus christ coming to this earth it's amazing what jesus christ did uh just coming to this earth how he's fulfilled so many prophecies i've only just touched a few of them and uh how all these pictures and these types are in the bible so we should we should be a light in our marriages and we should admit the glory of god and I pray, uh, and if you're not married to, you're not a second-class citizen, so singles are not second-class citizens. That's another thing. You can be completely content knowing that your husband is Christ, whether you're a guy or a girl. You are part of the bride of Christ. So get over yourself and, uh, and uh, submit to the Lord. And so this is what we've learned. We need to walk, in, uh, we need to wa- walk like Christ in the light, in the, in the love, in, and walk circumspectly. We need to wed like Christ. Wives submitted to their husbands, husbands loving their wife. And our marriages should look like Christ in the church. So next time we get together, we're going to talk about waxing strong in Christ. And then after that, warring in Christ. And then winning the peace through Christ. So that's where we'll finish up in Ephesians. Any questions? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father.